That's James chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Thanks very much, Sophie, for reading. My name's Nathan, and um, I'm one of the ministers here at, at Trinity. Really good to see you either online or here in the building. Well done for remembering the clock changes as well. There's always one clock in the house that you forget, isn't there? And you sort of look at it, and suddenly, you know, you're shocked by that. But let's not look around if uh, someone comes in in 40 minutes' time. Uh, let's be gracious towards them. Let me pray, and then we look at James chapter 4 together. All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Lord, as we look at this uh, difficult chapter in many ways today, um, we pray that we would have hearts that are ready to be rebuked, trained, corrected, um, challenged, encouraged by what we read. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I should say for those um, who like knowing where we're going. We're looking at James chapter four today. Next week is Easter, so Good Friday, Sunday, we'll be thinking um, about the cross and the resurrection. Looking forward to that. And then we'll be back in James um, for two weeks after that, if you like kind of knowing where we're going, so that's helpful for you. That's where we're going. Well, I remember if, uh, I don't know if you remember Diane Lockhart. We should see a picture of her. We referred to her a few weeks ago. And um, Diane Lockhart from the TV series that you really don't need to watch at all. It's not, it's not great, but a TV series called The Good Fight. Chicago lawyer, she's an upright citizen, but she's dabbling in a, in a double life, a resistance movement against the US government. And she thinks she's getting away with it. She's flirting with this, this double life. Um, and I said I would give you an update if, if that was sort of relevant for, for the sermon series, and I think it is. 
One episode uh, in season three uh, becomes a clash. She's asked um, to be involved in a, a legal operation to tamper with some voting machines for the US election in 2016. And um, she's got a choice to make. Is she gonna be a, a friend with this resistance movement, but then be an enemy of the state, or, or is she not? Spoiler alert, if you're working your way through the series, that you're probably not. She quits the resistance movement, the underground illegal resistance movement, stays with a day job, and hopefully everything's okay. Phew, she's all right, Diane's okay. But Diane Lockhart, four things in this series, it came to a clash. It came to a head for her because she was shocked into seeing that she couldn't have a foot in both worlds, in that legal, upright, loyally world, but then this other world that was illegal and underground and tampering with voting machines. In her spare time, tampering with these voting machines, and yet in her job, upholding democracy and law, they, they just couldn't go together. It was untenable. And as we come to James chapter four today, he's saying the spiritual equivalent of that. It's a jolt and a rebuke. As John showed us at the beginning, verse four, you adulterous people, James says. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You can't two-time God. That's what he's saying. You can't two-time God by being a friend of the world and a friend of him. And that's, that's the message of the book of James in a nutshell that we're looking at. But in this particular chapter, in chapter four, that the volume of that message is turned up to max. If you can remember to a week ago when we were last in James. Um, do you remember we were looking at the tongue, looking in our mouth and looking at the tongue and the damage that can do? But then James said there's two types of wisdom, earthly wisdom or heavenly wisdom. I wonder which one you've chosen in this last week. Heavenly wisdom, do you remember at least of the fruit of mercy and peace and goodness? But then earthly, worldly wisdom leads to selfishness, envy, evil. And actually the scattered group of Christians and believers that, that James is writing to, they're choosing the wrong kind of wisdom, earthly wisdom and the fruit that comes from that. Hence the wake up call, he wants them to hear this, he needs them to hear this, and will do well to hear it as well. First thing then, that we're gonna see, unchecked desires cause fights and quarrels. So if you're new to church or you're coming along here and you think church would be the last place in the world that you would expect to see a fight or a quarrel, or maybe you're thinking, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be the last place that you would expect that. But clearly it's an issue for this church that James is writing to. Do you remember in chapter two, there were class issues, issues of favoritism going on. Or last week they were praising God, but cursing one another. As you look at verses 11 and 12 in this passage, we're told they're slandering one another. They're judging others in the church and therefore sitting over the law. And James says, this isn't right. And actually James wants to diagnose what the cause of these fights and quarrels are. That's in verse one. Can you see the answer? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
the cause of these fights and quarrels. It's not coming from out there, it's coming from in here, within. Desires that battle within us. The, the Greek word for desires is the word hadone, that means pleasure, delight, uh, desires, that kind of thing. And, and that's what is driving them, hedonism, hedone, hedonism. And we might say, well, we all have desires. Um, it's not such a bad thing, is it? Well, if they're unchecked, James says in verse 2, look, look where they lead. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Of course, desires can be good things, can't they? I mean, surely you're with me in desiring a, a holiday. It's been a while. Desiring sitting by a pool or, you know, on the beach by the, by the sun and water. You know, we desire those things. That's, that's good. They're not sinful per se, but, but the issue here is for James's readers that, that they are driving them. It's when a good thing has become a, a God thing. When my pleasure equals number one and, and no one dares stand in the way. It's the attitude that says, I'll, I'll be ruthless because I'm the person that gets what I want. And the outworking, James says, is that it's causing killing. That's probably the way that Jesus refers to it, murder in the heart. But it's also quarrels, fighting because of these desires that are unchecked. It's been a while since I read or watched Harry Potter. I don't know if any Harry Potter fans here, but you might remember, I can't remember which book, but one of the, the things in it, the, the Mirror of Erised. Remember that? The Mirror of Erised, that's desire spelt backwards. I don't think I'd realized that at the time, but I did afterwards. And um, it's a magical mirror in Hogwarts. Harry discovers it one night. And, and as he looks into this magical mirror, it shows back to him and to anyone who looks into it, the deepest, most desperate desires of, of their hearts. And so for Harry, he looked into the mirror and saw his mum and dad, who he never knew because they died when he was a baby. But then Ron Weasley, Harry's friend, comes and looks into it. He doesn't see that. He sees himself as the Quidditch captain. Again, if you haven't read or watched Harry Potter, what on earth are you talking about? But, and it, he sees himself as this position of status. Uh, and prestige in the school but actually for Harry he became obsessed with this mirror it showed him the depths of, of what he wanted and he kept on going back and Ron said look you've got to not look in this mirror it's driving you you're becoming obsessed you're you're, you're unhealthily looking into this thing and, and do you know what they did they fell out Ron and, and Harry because of this obsession cause fights and quarrels James is saying that kind of thing's going on with his readers. And that led to two prayer-related problems for them. Did you spot that? Verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. They're not asking God for stuff. And so they don't have it. And actually, when they do ask God, it's with the wrong motives, he says. It's out of greed. They're led by desire for, for stuff trying to sort of manipulate God as if he's some kind of divine vending machine that just gives them all the pleasures and desires that they want. I should say here that it doesn't mean that all unanswered prayer means that we're praying with the wrong motives. The Bible would say other things about that. But there is a challenge, isn't it, for us here, that there is a battle, a war going on within us. And so can I ask, is the driving force in our lives 
the selfish desire for pleasure and hedonism. That might be material, stuff, might be sexual, outside a marriage context. It might be professional. If you're overlooked for a promotion or a pay rise, how do you respond to that? Is it the one thing that's driving you more than anything else in life and you react and blow up when that doesn't go your way? Because we need to know that the daily message of stuff going on around us is, if you want it, grab it. YOLO, you know, you only live once. Grab it, get it in life. And actually in the church context, there's many ways that our desire for pleasure can show itself in covetousness. Someone at church has got a bigger lounge than you have. Someone's got a bigger garden, or they've got a garden in London. Their kids are at a better school. They've got a quicker, better brain in Bible studies, or they're better socially than you are. Or they've got a husband. Or you think they've got a younger, better looking wife than your wife. And in our worst moments we go, I want that, I desire that. And James says unchecked desires, they bubble over and they lead to fights and quarrels. And this shouldn't be, the church should be different than the world, James says. I don't know for you if an issue comes to head with someone at, at Trinity um, and it's going in the direction of fights and quarrels, is your first instinct to, um, to, to blame them, to point to something wrong with them? They're so annoying, they, they're gobby, they always say this or do, yeah, maybe they are, but have you checked your own heart? Have you prayed about it? And if you notice that your life is one that's always or often involved with quarrels or broken relationships with other Christians because your hot tempers can have overtaken you, we need to see that fights and quarrels are just a symptom of something deeper. And that's our second point. The friendship with the world causes enmity with God. This is a shift then from the, the horizontal relationship with others to the vertical relationship with God. Look at verse four again. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We've heard some pretty hard hitting things in James so far, but it's been brothers, sisters, now adulterers. Remember, this is a letter written to Christians, yet it's a rebuke with a capital R at this point. Why such strong language? It's a bit, bit full on, isn't it? Well, the reason is because they've become friends with the world. They've become double-minded. We might think friendship with the world, that sounds nice or a bit light, doesn't it? But no, he's saying you're committing spiritual adultery. So friendship with the world, what I'm not saying here is that it, this isn't talking about not you know, loving the world and the environment. It's not about that. It's not about living in the world or, or, or chatting to people in the world. It's, it's saying that we've been so shaped by the priorities, the values, the desires of the fallen world that we live in. One author, a guy called Jerry Bridges, I think helpfully puts it like this. 
He said friendship with the world is being attracted to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of this temporal life. It's quite helpful. Let me say that again. Friendship with the world is being attached to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of this temporal life. And what's frightening, at least I found it frightening, is that that James's readers here, they've not obviously abandoned God. But by swallowing the world's values, favoritism, envy, selfish ambition, they've become friends with the, the world and made God an enemy. And that's what the heart of this book is all about, this double-mindedness. And it, it so helpfully highlights for us this black and white choice. Will you be a friend of God, like Abraham in chapter 2, or will you be a friend with the world? We're called to exclusivity. We can't flirt with the world. You can't be a Diane Lockhart, James is saying. A few years ago, a music tutor um, that I had, he, uh, he was married, got divorced, but quite a few years later was getting married again. I heard about this um, through a friend of mine, and it was only a, a few kind of months afterwards that my friend told me that, that throughout the engagement, um, the wedding, the, the few months into marriage, that actually the, the lady that he married was having an affair through that whole time. So as they were doing the invites, sending them out, the, the kind of what color is the tablecloth going to be at the reception, you know, who's going to be bridesmaids, walking down the aisle, first few months of marriage, all of that time she was in love, having an affair with another man. And he, of course, was rightly crushed, devastated by this. He was jealous for her. And our God, too, is jealous. He doesn't tolerate rivals. That's the point in verse 5. It's a tricky verse, but what it's saying is that the Holy Spirit who lives in us, he is jealous for us. He's pained when we sin, when we selfishly desire things of this world. And you might be thinking, God being jealous, is that a bit OTT? Isn't that a bit controlling? Well, his jealousy is, is linked rightly with his love. They come together. So my wife, Charlotte, if, if someone started flirting with her and texting her all the time or giving her flowers and things like that, and if I didn't care about it, if I just, you know, whatever, that wouldn't be loving, would it? It would be right for me to be jealous. And, and God is lovingly jealous for us, his children. So can I ask, where, is, where are we in love with the ways of the world? Two-timing God. Spiritual adultery. Where are, where are we in bed with the world, if I can put it like that? Well, a good question to ask is, in this last year that we've had, have you grown more in love with the world or more in love with Jesus? Something to think about. Or is there anything costly that we give up to follow Jesus? Or is this world such a home to us that we don't look any different than anyone else? teenagers here at, at Trinity uh, at school what comes first is it the values of the world or is it your relationship following Jesus we can't cherish God and the values of the world this can't have two masters and actually as, as we hear this today 
it's full on. It confronts us. I'm aware of that. But some of us need to hear this rebuke. We've, we've taken the, the wedding ring off, if you like, with, with God, and we've just assimilated with the world. We're no different than us. We need to hear this. We've made God an enemy, James would say. But I guess for more of us, we're, we're flirting with the world. It's, it's not gone that far, but we're flirting with the world. And look, I, I think just by nature of, of living in London, um, going to a workplace where the values aren't Christian, pretty much spending most of our lives there, watching loads of stuff on Netflix, reading news on our phone, all those kind of, just by doing those things, we're, we're going to be buying into the values and priorities of the world. I'm not telling you to quit your job or quit Netflix even or anything. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we need to know that. Those things are shaping us. But there'll be other people here that think, well, I don't really need to hear this. This isn't me. I'm not a friend of the world. But if that's you, let me remind you of Demas. Who's Demas, you might say. Well, he's a guy in the New Testament. He only comes up a few times, but he's described as being a fellow laborer, a gospel worker with the Apostle Paul. He's a good guy. Yeah, by the time we get to 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, Demas, because he loved this world, deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. It's a scary verse. This guy, Demas, brilliant, gospel guy, love Jesus. Where is he later on? Well, he's, oh, he's fallen in love with the world. Is nowhere spiritually. If you don't think you need to hear this, just remember demons. But listen, wherever we're at, whether we've assimilated, flirting with the world, the solution for all of us is the same. And it's a wonderful thing that we'll be looking at as our last point. Point three, humble yourself before the gods of abundant grace. Verse six, if you look at that again, I think it's one of the most precious verses in the whole Bible. It says this, but he, that is God, gives us more grace. But he gives us more grace. So if God is demanding this kind of total devotion to him, he also supplies us with grace, more than enough grace to live like that. He resources us with the very grace we need to live. And there's always more of it. There's always more grace for every situation and an inexhaustible stream upon stream of grace upon grace to help us live as a friend of God's. Think of um, by the sea, I mentioned a holiday by the beach earlier, but imagine by the sea, there's a little four-year-old's girl and, and she says to mummy and daddy, she goes over to them and says, mummy, 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 daddy, daddy, daddy. Um, I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to empty all of the water out of the sea. And she gets her little bucket and goes down there and, and picks it up and throws a bit out and goes back and keeps going. Has she made a dent on the sea? She, of course she hasn't. And God's grace is the same. It's inexhaustible. It's like trying to empty the sea. You can't do it. And our sin, however great it is, cannot outrun God's grace for you. And so that means if you're overcome by hedonism, desires, there's more grace. If you're a stubborn person and um, it's easy to fight, there's more grace. If your life is so challenging because of lockdown and not seeing family members and, and all the things that that brings with it, there's more grace for you. 
Do you want this? Do you want that, that bucket loads, that oceans of, of grace? Well, well, James says there's one condition. I don't, don't know if you spotted it. Verse six, humility. Got to be humble. Let me read from verse six again. He gives us more grace. That is why scripture said, God opposes the proud, but shows grace to, sorry, let me say that again. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's always more grace, but you've got to be humble. It's a condition to receive it. Thing is, humility is not very cool, is it? Think like humility, you know, we celebrate people that, that rise up to the top and it doesn't matter how they get there. Humility is seen as weakness, but yet in the Christian message, humility stands at the very heart of the gospel. I say, so what are these hallmarks of humility? Well, verse seven, we're to submit to God. I like what one person put this week that I read. They said, submitting to God, it, it grates like fingernails against the chalkboard of our culture. That's a good line, isn't it? <laughs> submission, oh, we don't like submission to God. No, it grates like fingernails on a chalkboard of our culture. And it's humbling, yet if we live under his rule, that's the best thing we could possibly do. As a double-sided promise as well. Resist the devil, he'll flee you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. That, that doesn't promise a trouble-free life, but it, it says we can have a, a friendship, an intimacy, a fellowship with the God of the universe. And included here as well is the language of repentance. Verse 9 is, is not your classic kind of memory verse, is it? Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. How, how many of you have, you know, memorized that one? And it, of course, isn't meaning that we're never joyful in the Christian life. It doesn't mean we're called to a life of gloom, but, but it's appropriate to repent, for there to be sorrow for our sin and our double-mindedness. Quite a few years ago, I, I read the Bible with a guy who uh, we sort of met up um, quite a bit. And, and one time we met up for a coffee, and he just said to me, Nathan, I've got to tell I had a... I did something stupid last night. I had a one-night stand just the night before. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to think. And we had a really good chat about it. And, of course, I wanted to take him to the oceans of grace that we see here in, in verse 6. And, and we got there. But actually, first, it was right to, to do those things in verse 9, to grieve, to mourn and wail. It was right for him to, to repent and of course, then we, we showed and, and we looked at the oceans of grace for, for sexual sin, for any sin that God provides. Oceans of that. But repentance is necessary. We need to humble ourselves. And, and actually, humility, as I said, is at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Because we come before God and we say, well, we're sinful. Our hearts are impure. We, we weep at our sin. Yet we can come to Jesus Christ, humbly, coming to the foot of the cross, 
where our sins are washed away in an ocean of grace. And what happens when we do that? He says we're lifted up. We're lifted up. That means we're, we're friends with God. We're accepted. We're reconciled. He, he calls us sons and daughters. Isn't that wonderful? I'm aware some, though, here will have never humbled yourself. Maybe you're watching online. You've never done that before. I want you to know that there are fountains of grace, enjoyment with God, friendship with God, available to you, but you need to humble yourself to submit to God. And actually the testimony of many here at Trinity is that when you do that, it's the most liberating, wonderful thing that you can ever do. As we finish then, humbling ourselves, not only allows us to swim in the rivers of grace, but it also gives us strength to be single-minded in our, in our friendship with the God of the universe. And actually, the more and more that we humbly turn our eyes upon Jesus, and we desire Jesus above anything and everything else, it's then that, as the hymn writer puts it, that the things of earth, worldly things, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let me pray. Father, we, we're sorry, I'm sorry, um, for the ways that we um, have fallen in love with the world, or flirted with the world in, in various different ways this week, this year. And if it was just that, and that was the end of this passage, Lord, we would be in a bad place. But we thank you that your mercy is more, that your grace is abundant towards us. And so I pray that we would humble ourselves and grab at that grace and that relationship and friendship with you as our Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.